Well, a quick announcement as the kids are mostly gone that uh, we ran into the bounce house, couldn't cancel that, so after church we'll blow it up for half an hour or so. Um, but since we're not in the park with every adult around, parents, you'd have to escort your kids out. So, you know, if you ever have little kids, when you have something like that, then they'll be on you, persistently tugging at you. Can we go out? Can we go out? Can we go out and do it? I don't know uh, if your kids are like that. I have kids like that, that they get something on their mind and they tirelessly just want you to know about it. Time after time after time, they want, to, they want you to know uh, what is going on and um, what is happening as far as uh, what they want to do. <laughs> they get your attention. Kind of like a dog chasing a cat, relentless, right? Just chases it around, ceaseless, never gets tired and never catches it either. Um, but, and I thought about that as well. I had a kid I coached from Swink. Anybody know where Swink, Colorado is? Yeah, and I coached an all-star team, and he came up and tried out for it, and that, it, there's no other kid I've ever coached that had a motor like that kid. He, I could put him on some of the best players in this state, and he would chase them around for 40 minutes of the game, never get tired, never stop, and they would hate him at the end. He was absolutely tireless and unyielding. And so, uh, I don't know if you've ever been like that in your life, uh, tireless, unyielding, or having those persistent um, kids uh, that come to you, or uh, persistently or tirelessly or ceaselessly uh, going after something in your life. Uh, what are things that you pursue with that kind of vigor and passion, I wonder? But then there's another side to this idea of um, being ceaseless and yielding and persistent and tireless. It can be something that just is wearing you down. <laughs> it can be something that you just wish would go away, a nagging pain, an injury, or, or a situation with somebody, or work, or, or things that just begin to really uh, push on you and, and wear you away. Um, well, each of these words fits under this idea of relentless. And we're going to talk about what it means to be relentless today in Mark chapter 12. And I love that word, relentless. It's just going hard after something. It's uh, being unyielding, persistent, tireless, and ceaseless pursuit of something. Now, as we enter into our story today here in Mark 12, we're going to find uh, two different kinds of relentlessness. <laughs> One that we've noted over and over and over in the first 12 chapters of Mark. And that was the relentless, tireless, unending questioning of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and leaders of Jesus. They were on him every stop trying to get him to trip up with his words, to say a quote wrong, to give an answer wrong, so that the crowds would turn against him. And yet, they never quite seemed to win, did they? And often Jesus would just kind of move on, give an answer, or even slip out of the crowd after he gave his answer. He wouldn't stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. He knew the time had not come. But here, entering this Passover week and his final week, he knew the confrontation was rising and escalating, and we're going to see that. We're going to see he no longer backs down. He actually goes on their home turf, the temple, which they didn't realize is actually his home turf. But uh, he's going to go on toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, and talk with them. So we're actually going to begin at the end of Mark uh, chapter 11 today. And we're going to see some uh, challenges that uh, Jesus poses 
and that his opponents keep coming after him. And so now Jesus had driven out, if you remember, he came in. We, we had Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus is coming in. This momentum build, these people coming with him, the crowds began to gather and say, what is happening here? This parade was entering him into the city and these cries out and, the, and his opponents said, stop them. Only God deserves praise. And he said, hey, listen, if I stop them, the, right, the rocks would cry out in worship to me. And so he'd already laid stake down that he's claiming to be one with God the Father. Then he went in the next day, and he looked and he saw people passing through the outer courts of the Gentiles. He saw uh, people exchanging money, using it as a shortcut, people getting uh, taken advantage of because they travel a long way for Passover. They're being overcharged for these sacrificial animals. And he began to overturn the money changers' tables and drive it out with a whip. And so he returns again to the temple after that, and we see this. And they came again to Jerusalem, he and his disciples, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Pretty big group. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do them? Referring to what he did the day before in driving out the tables, but also he was teaching in the temple courts. Teaching in the temple courts is reserved for these men who dedicated their lives, went down the right pedigree, had the right rabbi they followed, had the right lineage. What gave him the right to teach about God in this place? For centuries, uh, it had been left for the religious leaders. And so they asked him that, and Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And so uh, Jesus is pretty good at asking a question. And uh, pretty big question they asked, though. And it's a question they should have asked, because if they didn't believe he's the son of God, they had a role to play in protecting the people. And so what authority does Jesus have? Now, as we go through this this morning, I want you to ask yourself that question. What authority does Jesus have in your life? Jesus answers them, and I love how he does this. We point it out over and over, and yet I still haven't gotten in the habit myself. I need to do this with my kids more, but I don't know if my wife would appreciate it as much if I answered every question you had with a question. <laughs> but uh, some of the best coaches I've had for me in ministry uh, helped me with good questions. And so Jesus asked them this question. Was the baptism of John, we call him John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. So they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid because the people held that John was a prophet. He had a big following, very popular. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. So Jesus simply said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And they were kind of cut short, weren't they? Yeah, I don't know. It's just so amazing to me how he can take a confrontational situation with all those leaders approaching him, upset about what he'd done, and just turn it like that to where they're like speechless. And they're like, well, they were all huddled. I'm sure the crowds were watching and waiting for them to come out. And then they come out 
Our uh, final answer is, we don't know. <laughs> uh, they were just trying to back out and save face at that point. It was a loaded question meant to trip him up, but it didn't. But it did set up the situation for the crowds to start to think about what authority does Jesus have? Start to think about who is he? It's something we need to ask is how would we answer that question? What authority does Jesus have? And then if someone were to put our life on trial with some questions, would our answer actually reflect how we're living? Would our answer of what we say about Jesus' authority reflect our choices, our thoughts, our actions during the week? And so this all took place in public. And if you read the passage or you read the other Gospels where this story is told, you see Jesus addressing them, and I imagine it like this. I imagine then he turns and he addresses the crowd while they're still standing there. He turns and he addresses the crowd, and that's where we get the beginning of chapter 12. He goes into a parable. See, they didn't think he was going to answer their question, um, but he does it directly, but he does something a little tricky here. He says this, tells a parable. He began to speak to them in parables, both those confronting him and I think the crowds around, if we look at the other passages and uh, the Gospels. And he says, when the season, or he said this, a... Um, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a tower. Then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some kind of fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so would many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So... Immediately, he starts into this parable, and really the story he's telling wouldn't be unfamiliar to the people there. So it's a common practice for a wealthy person to buy a, a vineyard, to buy a plot of land, to develop it and hire it out, but not be there all the time, and then to expect to get return on his investment. It's not too unfamiliar to us. It's small business owners do all the time. They'll buy it, set it up, get employees, and then they have an expectation that their employees are going to produce a profit. Now with a vineyard, it takes a few years to get it going, several years before it's going to produce. So the tenants were there working it and, and developing it, and it wouldn't be a few years before these servants were sent in. But uh, it, it's a common situation for them, but not only from uh, the culture in which they live, but the vineyard and the owner was also common, especially for those leaders who were right in front of him. They would have understood that this description matches one of the most well-known books and prophets that they taught from, the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah uh, chapter 5, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard, 
on a fertile hillside. And he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. That's exactly Jesus' description, isn't it, of the vineyard? Got it, put a fence around it, watchtower, wine press. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And then it goes on a few verses later uh, to say this. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. That's what Isaiah was declaring in his prophecy, in this picture, the word picture he was giving. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And so what we have here is Jesus connecting them with that story. And uh, this idea of judgment, the idea in this picture of this parable in the past where Israel was being judged for good fruit or for bad fruit. And their minds would have gone, those who knew this scripture, to, okay, Jesus is telling us this story, and it's a story of judgment. And in this parable, we can pretty easily identify the characters, right? The owner of the vineyard is God, right? God, God the Father, the Lord, he is the one. The tenants here, as we're going to see in a moment, the tenants are specifically the religious leaders, the ones who are in charge of caring for God's people, for setting up worship for them, for teaching the scriptures, for uh, leading the sacrifices, for taking care of the temple, and for working in the local synagogues. And the fruit, fruit then to be produced would be people who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength through following all that he commanded. That is what would be expected. And so those sent by the owner would be ultimately probably seen as prophets. Maybe John the Baptist, even Jesus himself would be those sent. And so I think the tenets... Uh, in this story, were interested in possession and use. They weren't really worried about ownership of the land. They were, they were wanting to use it for their own good instead of the good of the owner, which is why they didn't want to send him part of the profits. They were focused more on their own advancement, and they forgot that they were hired to be stewards to take care of this because it was not theirs in the first place. And so... We see one servant after another is sent, beaten, killed, ignored, and finally the beloved son sent. Now the word here, beloved, has the meaning of only. We see that in John 3.16, for God sent his one and only son. God sent his beloved son. So this is the only son, the only heir, and for some reason they, maybe they thought the owner had died, and if they get rid of the son, then they'll have no more problems. Um, or they were so deep down their path of sin and beating these people that this one just went too far and they took him out. But in either case, we see here that Jesus has the, uh, the idea that they are being tied in with this vineyard. And what I love that he does is he turns here and he asks a question. Uh, he says here in this verse, he goes, What then will the owner do? What then will the owner do to those who killed his son? Now, 
Here in Mark, Mark tends to be brief, and uh, he just says Jesus' response. I want to show you real quickly the answer that we get from the crowds. Um, in Matthew 21, when he tells a story, he says the people responded, he, being the owner, will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And so Jesus led the crowds before him to the point of saying, whoever those tenants are, they deserve to be punished to the highest degree for killing multiple people, for destroying, for not sharing, for not uh, being good stewards of the owner's property. They deserve the death penalty. Not just to be thrown away in jail, they should be treated wretchedly because they acted wretchedly. Now Jesus concurs with that. He said uh, in verse 9, the owner, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And so, as he talks here, he not only makes this conclusion about the tenants, but then he ties it in to Psalm 118. He's done that several times here in uh, the end of Mark. And Psalm 118 talks about the idea of the cornerstone, and that's that stone that you set in place and everything's built correctly off of it. It's, it's the foundational stone. And Jesus is saying, and clearly pointing to the fact, he's saying, I am the cornerstone and you are rejecting me. And I don't know when the light bulb went on for that group of elders, leaders, and Pharisees when they started to think, you know, maybe get a little bit flushed, the blood rather than sweat starts to come, and they're like, looking around. He's calling us that. He's insulting us in front of all these people. I give them credit. They had enough wisdom to be quiet and leave rather than just escalate it at that moment. But you can see they were leaving with bitterness in their hearts, and it drove them all the more to find some sort of plan to get rid of them. And they would within a few days, wouldn't they? They were embarrassed and angered that they were the ones being called wretched. <laughs> and that Jesus was staking his claim. So you know what he did? What Jesus actually did there? Uh, Jesus announced the answer to their question, didn't he? He said, he is the beloved son. He is the cornerstone whose authority comes from God the Father. So he answered their question. He didn't leave them hanging, but he did it through a parable that indicted them for not serving his father well, which is why he came and cleared out the temple, which was why he is about to go to the cross. Because their hearts were far from him, even though their actions on the outside looked holy, they had lost their way in their relationship with God. And so at this moment, it's a pretty powerful moment where he says, I am the one with the authority. You haven't advanced the kingdom of God. There hasn't been a return of fruits. You have led the people away from God, adding to his laws extra rules, allowing these people to take advantage of those in the, 
in the very courtyard where the Gentiles, the only place they were allowed to pray to God, those who were proselytes and followers of God. And so it begs for a response here. What authority does Jesus have in our life? And it also asks the question, I thought, you know, what, are we being good stewards? Are we being good stewards of what God has given us? If you were to come and take account, what kind of fruit are we producing in our lives? You see, there's a problem I've got um, within this parable. There's, there's a problem I have with it because it doesn't make sense to me. What about this parable doesn't make sense when you look at it, especially in the American mindset? What about this parable does not make sense? What if the honored dame and Pharisee sending person after person after person to get beat? The first one just gets beaten. The next one gets shamed. And perhaps in that culture, one way they might beat and shame some man is to shave his head and send him off. Walking home, emasculated, embarrassed, having to go home empty-handed. But the owner keeps sending them, one after another, even after one is killed. Next, Thaddeus, you're up next. But the last guy, sir, he didn't return. <laughs> My friend over here that's still recovering. Yeah, you need to go. And he looks around, they're all gone, and he says, son, <laughs> come here, son, go down Get them to pay us what is ours because we own it. You need to go down there. I mean, it's a suicide mission. And he's sending his only son, his only heir. His wife was around. Why are you sending our son? What are you doing? It doesn't make any sense. And it's not supposed to make any sense, is it? If this were in our culture, we'd say, hey, after that second time, get a lawyer. Call the police. Get your evidence together. After the third time, you need to prosecute. You need to get down there or take things into your own hands. It would have never reached 4, 5, 6, 7, 18, 20, right? We would never let it go on that long without some sort of response. You see, Jesus is not only <laughs> condemning the Pharisees here, he's actually giving them a history lesson from day one until that point of how humanity has responded to the pursuit of God the Father. See, God worked through Abraham, set apart a family, and said, all nations will be blessed through you. And then 12 tribes came from there, and God set up the law, and then uh, set up the temple eventually through kings like David and Solomon. And then each step along the way, they, I mean, they're out of captivity in Egypt. These people in Israel start to complain, oh, we should go back to slavery because I don't like this food God's providing miraculously. Some of the kings started to turn their hearts from God, allow idol worship, and the list goes on and on. And it, even as you look and 
and, and you turn in your Bibles and even open up, just simply, I want you to do this with me if you have a Bible this morning. Open up to the very, maybe three pages in to the table of contents. Uh, you may never go there. You may go there every week trying to find where we're at, but it's very helpful. But if you want to know what Jesus is talking about, you can just start in the Old Testament. Uh, and you can look and you see uh, God sent Isaiah, rejected, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. I would not have wanted to be Hosea if you've ever read his story about what he had to do as a prophet. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, rejected, Jonah, rejected, and then uh, he rejected God himself, and then he went to the people. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, into Matthew, John the Baptist, rejected by the leaders. Jesus, the beloved son sent, rejected. Many of those I listed are killed. Some were just beaten, some were ignored. And then it comes to Jesus, and he's about to be killed, the beloved son. So he's giving them a, a history lesson. But why would you keep pursuing someone that rejects you? Why would you pursue someone that doesn't deserve another shot? Who didn't do what they were supposed to do? Who didn't earn a second chance? In fact, they begged to be punished with their actions. And why would you pursue someone that ultimately will kill your one and only son? It's relentless, ceaseless, tireless, and unyielding, this sending of servants. You see, what the parable does is it reveals God's character, doesn't it? by showing us his relentless grace. This is a sad story from one perspective, but on another it's mind-bending because God relentlessly, graciously pursues us over and over and over. He desires a relationship with us and comes hard after us. See, relentless grace, grace we need to remember, it's unmerited favor from God not earned, given out of God's goodness and loving kindness. A gift based on the goodness of the giver, not the receiver. It's because of how good God is that we have grace. And it's by grace we can be saved, not through works, so that none of us can boast. Grace is the story underlying this parable. But I don't know if we really get this kind of grace or, or even fathom that kind of sacrifice. Now, this was an obvious trial and brutal indictment on the current leaders of the time, but it's a, a message that God relentlessly pursues our hearts. We know that Jesus came himself. He says it over and over in Mark, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. To seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 15, where we get our, our one vision from. The idea of that one sheep going off and the shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one. The lady who loses one coin and searches relentlessly, ceaselessly for it into the night until she finally finds that coin and her neighbors celebrate with her. There's 
more celebration in heaven over one soul that is saved and found than over 99 who think they've got it all together. That's the God that we're here to worship today. You see, the opportunity to respond to him hasn't changed. See, Jesus is teaching here in the public calls for a response. You cannot hear these stories and not think, who, who is this man? What are we going to do with him? How are we going to respond to him? Will our hearts be softened towards him and willingly come to him, the one who died as an atonement for our sins and put an end to the whole sacrificial system and the need for a temple? Opening up the new covenant founded on what we call the gospel, the good news. You see, even after you come to Jesus and cross, cross that line of faith and say, yeah, I believe in him, he gives us this gift of the Holy Spirit. And what I've found is that even after I am his and I'm in his kingdom, I'm his child, he still loves me so much he keeps pursuing me. And then I may be struggling with something, and then I hear in a podcast or a message, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's convicting. And I don't do anything about it. Then go to a Bible study. Ah, same thing God brings up. Kevin, you, you need to adjust how you're using your time, or, or you need to get this area of your life under self-control, this emotion, and hand it over to me. You need to release more and be a better steward of what I've given you. Then he gives me a friend that, a good example then I open up the scriptures and read a book and it hits me and he keeps doing that until I respond he's so patient with me and he's patient with you I don't know what areas he's relentlessly pursuing you in right now but the good thing is he's going to keep coming after you because he knows that what's best for you he knows that when your heart loosens up and gets soft he can use you when we are in our greatest spot of weakness and open up our hands to the Lord and say just use me that's when he begins to work above and beyond my own strength or Kevin's skills or your skills and begins to change things. So this parable is about a stewardship of the opportunity God has given us. You see, we have the opportunity to participate in his mission, to make disciples. And uh, in John 15, there's a passage, and I'll do a whole sermon series on it sometime in the next year probably, but uh, it says, that you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. It's all about being a vine and that God is the vine, we are the branches. We're his vineyard. And if we remain in him, we, we, those who love him, obey him and follow him, then we begin to bear fruit. That means we begin to see disciples made, our lights shine, we reach people. You can invest in somebody, others invest in you, but it also means we change from the inside out. The Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And as he does that, then we begin to see this change. And so do we grasp the opportunities God has given us uh, to participate in his work and to bear kingdom fruit? And so the question becomes, is, are we going to respond um, to what Jesus has done? Are we going to allow him to still pursue us with relentless grace? Are we going to respond to him? Are we going to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives here this morning? Are we going to allow him to 
work and seize that opportunity to bear fruit. And I just want you to think through just a few questions this morning as we finish out is, do we believe God and His Son owns everything and has authority in our lives? Is our obedience producing the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts? And then do we intentionally pursue disciple-making? Our, our theme for Mark was all in. If you remember that initial poster, it was Mark was a guy himself who, who knew the Lord, but then Paul saw he was a little wishy-washy. He bailed out on a missions trip. But then later on he came, he wrote this gospel, and he's praised for this change in his spirit. And he, at some point he went all in for Christ and just said, whatever you want to use me for, use me for, Lord. And so that's where we come to our our prayer and our hope for this church and one, one more person giving their life over to Christ, one more area that we're bearing fruit in our own lives, one more step closer to Jesus Christ. I uh, grew up and had the opportunity to um, have a job and earn some money. My brother was out in Oregon and he was older so and stronger, so he got the machete and he got to go around and trim Christmas trees there in Oregon. And uh, he would go around on this Christmas tree farm and ride around this little moped, which was fun, and uh, trim those. And then my dad got me out there with the owner, and he said, hey, give Kevin some work. So uh, he was building a house out there. So he handed me a bucket and said, go around. And they just framed it out, pick up all the loose nails and everything, everywhere you find nails. And then there was so much to be distracted by, to go and do. He said, there's Cokes in the fridge have that whenever you want but I knew this is my first opportunity that he was going to return and see if I actually filled that bucket up and look around to see if anything was there now today I think how I never I should have just gotten some magnifier walked around like that but um, wasn't smart enough then didn't have a friend like him one to help me engineer something smart so uh, I went around and just picked up one after the other but I can tell you when I when he came back and he saw I had gone, done a good job that day, and then I earned a reward for just doing that, which was more than I deserved. It felt good. It was something amazing. I think sometimes we forget in the midst of this world and everybody being against us or the struggles or the physical things that are relentlessly tearing us down, that there's a better reward for us. That someday he's going to look at us and say, you're my child, well done, good and faithful servant. Sometimes I don't think we relentlessly pursue that enough. Some of the things of the Lord. And there are things we have to do to make this world work and our families work that aren't fun. But at the end of it, if it's not all seasoned with a love for Christ and a desire to bear fruit for Him, then what are we pursuing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you that uh, your son is so amazing and just how he stood for truth and, and he came to bring life on the cross and yet he, he knew there was an indictment that had to be made on the leaders at that time. But Lord, if we're honest and we look at the whole of human history, we have this tendency to follow you and then to fall away and then to get into self-centered living and we want to be good stewards of what you've given us, both here at Incline and in each of our lives. We want to respond to you because you, you own everything. This whole world is your vineyard. 
and we're just given the opportunity to steward it. What a blessing and privilege that is. How will we respond? Will we reject the messages you send over and over? Maybe it's today you need to say, no, I'm not going to reject Jesus' authority anymore. I'm going to trust in him alone for salvation and forgiveness of sin. Or maybe it's, Lord, I know and I believe in you. I sing the words. Show me the areas of my life that I'm holding on to that I'm not bearing fruit in. Oh, Lord, help us to have pliable hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.